Welcome to the Liberal Your Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre, and welcome back. I hope you're having a great summer, or whatever is left of it, unfortunately. And to restart the second semester on the MLS side of this podcast, since my colleague Leszek from our friends at Liberté Foundation in which Poland already had a first episode post-summer break with a great conversation with the Dr. Nicole Koning, and she's the head of policy at the Munich Security Conference, so you should check that out. But as I was saying, we're going to restart from our side here in Lisbon, and I will bring you two podcasts for the price of one. In fact, this is the first time we do this format here with ELF, but because there's a good reason for it. We have two great researchers and authors that are going to talk about a similar concern, which is the future of the EU relationship with China, where one of the conversations will focus on Africa with Dr. Maria Adele Karai, and the other one will center in the Western Balkans with PhD candidate and friend of the podcast, Laia Komerma. I will introduce each one of these authors with more detail after this intro. On a podcast host perspective, and not making this all about me, naturally, it is interesting to observe that the two researchers with deep knowledge about China and China interaction with the rest of the globe, particularly with the European perspective, independently arrive at some similar points. Just to give you two examples, but dear listener, as you go into the conversations, maybe you will notice more. China is not barging uninvited in host countries. In fact, both in Africa and in the Western Balkans, they are welcome there. And the second point that relates to the first one, both authors agree that we should not alienate China from the world order, but find productive, constructive ways of working together. So with this intro out of the way, welcome back to the Art Podcast, and I hope you keep enjoying our conversations about liberal values and ideas and the future of the European Union. So now for the first part of this two-part conversation about the future of the relationship between the European Union and China, I bring you Laia Kamerma. Laia is a PhD candidate at Pompeu Fabra University. She is a researcher at the Barcelona Institute of International Studies and a policy officer at LIMEC. In fact, I already had the pleasure to talk to Laia for the videocast Liberty, and this was episode two, where we talked about the importance of young people to get involved in politics. But this time I have Laia to go into her policy paper, number 24, on ELF, which has the title EU Enlargement in the Western Balkans, the Effect of Chinese Investment. So with no further ado, I bring you Laia Komerma. I'm here with Laia Komerma. Laia, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, you're a frequent flyer now in our conversations about the future of Europe. And uh, I already explained in the intro that this is not the first time that we have a conversation. You were in the videocast and pretty soon you'll be coming to the podcast again to talk about the LIMEC manifesto for the next year elections. But before all that, and because this is the first time that I have you on the podcast, tell us a little bit about yourself. What was the path that you took to the point that we're now talking here? It was a bit here and there. I studied in, in my native Barcelona and, and then in Madrid studying philosophy, politics and economics. But then I moved to the London School of Economics and there 
it kind of started this specialization uh, that I took uh, in international relations and specifically Chinese foreign policy and China's relation with the EU. I worked for a while in Brussels and, and in Hong Kong. And then three years ago, I started my, my PhD on EU-China economic relations, um, as you said. And I also did a research stay at the Lao China Institute in, in, at the King's College in London, uh, which truly was, was uh, an amazing experience. And since I've also recently been spending uh, quite a lot of time in Greece, I gained interest in the Western Balkans. And this is how this, this paper that we'll be discussing today was born. One thing that is amazing about Laia for our listeners is the, how eclectic you have your background. It's quite amazing. You are <laughs> a, truly a person of the world, like Socrates would say. Well, that's, that's a good connection. You're in Greece, so everything <laughs> clicks in. Yes, I have the paper here in, with me. Of course, our listeners cannot see me you know, waving it around, but it's EU enlargement in the Western Balkans. The Effect of Chinese Investment. This is a highly considered policy paper, even inside the ELF family. So let's get into it, because this is such an important topic right now. And in this policy paper, you do express your concern about some of the decisions that are made by the European Union regarding an enlargement to the Western Balkans that you just said you got interested about that regional situation. And actually, this we just had two episodes on this topic, but... Tell us then your opinion. What is the status of the interplay that you see uh, between China, between the Western Balkans and the European Union? Yeah, so I won't go into the, the topic of uh, EU enlargement policy because, as you said, you've already had two episodes and the paper does discuss it. Uh, but I will maybe uh, dig a bit deeper on, on China's uh, engagement in the region. And the fact is that while it is less than 10%, China has managed to offset some of the more traditional partners of this region, such as Russia or Turkey, uh, which is something that, that was new for, for the EU. Um, and also, it's maybe while it's not um, great, in, you know, it's 10%, as I said, but it's very focused on three sectors. And that, that's why it's so visible, right? Uh, it's in mining and heavy industry, transport infrastructure, and power generation. So this, you know, this industrial high-impact uh, investment for very, very big projects, this is what China usually, usually does in, in this region. Also, the second thing that is interesting is that China does not have a Western Balkan strategy, right? A comprehensive strategy. Uh, it has embedded its relationship with the Western Balkans in other platforms that it had already created, like the 17 plus one platform that now uh, it's it's 14 plus one and, and we know we, the future of this platform is quite quite uncertain or the cooperation within the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, also, we have several Confucius Institutes in the region, uh, but what we see is that China has a one country to one country policy in, in this region. So it's very different how we see China dealing with Serbia than with Albania or, or with North Macedonia. Then the, the final uh, common point that they have, uh, that China's policy with this region uh, has, is that all the loans that we see, those infrastructure loans that are mentioned, are from uh, state-owned banks, such as the Exit Bank, uh, and, and they usually provide uh, loans for 20 to 30 years, so very big loans, with just 2 to 3% interest rate, mm -hmm. right? And, and tackling uh, non-renewable energy, 
um, or or these uh, infrastructures that that I mentioned. So so it's state-owned banks uh, that that usually provide these these kind of loans more than private uh, loaners. The last thing that it's maybe important to keep to, to keep in mind is that as is the general sense in Europe, there was a big expectation of of uh, how China's economic involvement with the region uh, would be and the benefits that it would bring. But what I found researching for this paper is that there's a general sense of disappointment about those governments regarding China's low level of, of actual uh, economic involvement, and especially in the fields of greenfield investment um, and its willingness to contribute to the, re- to the region's wider economic development that actually did not uh, materialize as, as they expected. So even if the investment is quite uh, significant, it's not as the, the governments in, in the region actually expected. Mm, that is very interesting. And it connects later on. We will be talking about this, about the future of the region and the relationship with the EU. But let me stay here for a second. So it's very interesting what you just mentioned. And it comes later in our conversation when we talk about the future of the region and the relationship with the EU and China. But still here, it is interesting what you just mentioned, which is... Uh, this low level of investment, it's causing some disappointment regionally. So it is interesting for me to, to understand from what you explained that the investments are targeted, but the people in region are like, we, we, we want more, we want even more involvement. Is that, did I understood your point correctly? Well, yeah, because, you know, what we see in the Western Balkans is that there was, a, uh, like in other parts uh, of, the, of the world, like, like Africa or the Southeast of Asia, there was a need for development. There mm-hmm. was a need for, for money, right? And the traditional thing about the governance models between the European Union or the United States and China is that one is when they loan you money, it's attached to uh, quite a lot of conditionalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they will ask for certain, even even uh, democratic conditionalities, transparency conditionalities. So it's it's quite stringent, we could say. Um, also, the process is not the quickest one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was also a complaint from, from those governments. While China, it's very efficient. Um, it's n- n- non-conditionalities attached. You know, also the kind of uh, studies or, or evaluations that they do of the projects that they are going to invest the money in is is much lower than than the U or the US would do. That's all, that's also why it's quicker, right? Um, so so then they were able to provide quick money and cheap money to a lot of a lot mm. of governments. Um, and they used to like this conditionality. What the U was not able to portray is that it's not actually cheap money. It might be more expensive in the end, right? Um, and this is something that it needs to work on, both with regards to its China policy and to its enlargement policy. Um, because it will affect its, its global power. Um, but, but this is why uh, the governments in this region were expecting China to, to, become, to come, and, and also because of China, how it's portraying itself as a, as a global power and also a rich power. It's, its economic development model, or the China model, is, has, been, uh, has been used in its soft power around the world to, to, to appeal to governments that were maybe develop, developing uh, countries and, and probably not, not uh, as democratic as, the, as most of the governments in the Euro- European Union. So the fact that China arrived there and did not invest the kind of money that they were expecting in most of the countries, uh, you know, was, was a disappointment. 
Yes, very, very good point. And this is just a personal note as a Portuguese. I totally understand the need of investment and the need of development. And actually in Portugal, we got a lot of Chinese companies, state companies, get into our country. I do understand that um, need. I was just very interested in uh, what you just described, which is that openness. And that came because the Western Balkans were frustrated with Europe, or again, it gets to the point of this comparison that I did with Portugal. It, it 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 totally you know overstates that we just want people to help us develop our countries. Yeah, right. And actually, Portugal is a very interesting uh, case. Um, I have I have written one of my thesis articles about the Belt and Road Initiative memoranda, and mm -hmm. Portugal is one of the countries that joined the Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. uh, and where you see again that practically no major investment materialized as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, just some minor agreements uh, in some other fields uh, like naval or um, like like the naval one because you have very important ports in Portugal. Yes. Um, so so there's a need, there's a need for, for money, as you said. China was seen as maybe an opportunity to get this, this money. That's why you, you also carried the, the cost to join the, the Belt and Road Initiative, like Italy did. And now it's a hot topic right yes. now. Yes. <laughs> um, but then you 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 didn't see the the rewards, and that's also that's maybe soft power back backfiring for China. Mm, interesting, uh, fascinating. But uh, let's keep moving uh, to uh, some of the points you present on a policy paper. One of them that I was very very interested, and that is all this investment, all this uh, interplay leads to what you mention on your policy paper, the perpetuation of stabilocracies. And this is a very interesting point. So please get into that right away. What are stabilocracies and how this relates to China investment? Yeah, so a stabilocracy refers to autocrats that capture the state and claim to secure stability um, in this in the governments in this Western Balkan region, by pretending to champion Europeans' integration while relying on informal clientelist structures, uh, controlling the media, and regularly producing artificial political crises over EU conditionalities mm -hmm. to undermine any true efforts in strengthening the rule of law. This is how, how they are defined. Um, and they govern the countries using their patronage networks. So they provide stability, but they don't really contribute to furthering the democratic credentials of those countries. And this is something that, up to an extent, was, uh, was enabled by the, by the European Union's enlargement policy because, because of the conflictual past of this region and, and even violent past of this region. Mm -hmm. The EU used to prefer stability, we like stability, you know, at least they are not fighting each other, over democracy. And now... It's paying the price uh, for that because these people were enabled by the EU to keep their their uh, positions in, in those countries. But at the same time, the fact that China offered these vast resources to build infrastructure, those stabilo stabilocrats were able to, to portray themselves to, to the people in their countries as resourceful leaders and perpetuated civil power because they, they were saying, you know, I got China to come here and build this highway or build this bridge. And, and they were showing results, which is the, the, the way that they could stay in power and, and, and not be, be ousted. Um, so while the UN is to rethink its enlargement policies and the conditionalities 
that help in the democratization of, of this region, we need to take into consideration the links that allow these autocrats to stay in power and deal with them. Uh, because otherwise, an enlargement policy that, that does not tackle the root causes will not be successful. But let me ask you the other way around, which is, is China politically interested in this uh, kind of ruling, this stabilocracies? Are there connections also at the political level or the Chinese are like, no, we're not going to get into that at all? Well, that's a very complex question because in the paper I do go into the political influence of China in this region. But when it, China likes stability, that's that's a, a thing. They they don't like when when a, gov- a government is going through a conflictual period because this harms their interests. Mm-hmm. So so even when it comes to EU integration, they like stability. Um, they, in this in this sense, they are very different than than Russia. And and then a second thing is that they really like people-to-people contacts. So mm. they re- they rely on um, my personal knowing of you because this makes us friends. Therefore, we will look for each other's interests. And I will deal with you much more than I will deal with someone that is not my friend. So mm. if if the leaders of China have been able to create this, this personal relationship, um, is what they call guanxi, um, with the leaders of, of some of these Western Balkan regions, they will be preferred over some other leaders that might be more critical um, or not. One common thing that er- there's among this region is the, um, the one China policy and the non-recognition of Taiwan. So yes. if one of those countries was to recognize Taiwan or expand its links with Taiwan, they would, those would be an automatic no-go for China. But mm-hmm. this is as far as, as um, I can say right now about, about these, these political uh, contacts. Again, as you mentioned, we just had the, the Italian situation. And for some of our uh, listeners not as familiar, Italy, it's um, expressing their intention of dropping from the Belt and Road Initiative. Let's keep moving because, again, on your policy paper, you bring something that is very, very interesting, which is China does this in a very specific way, with a very specific goal. One of them has to do with the regional influence, yes, but the other one, it's the proximity of the European Union single market. So you present this conundrum. If the Western Balkan countries do express a disinterest in being part of the European Union, for China, this is also a setback because they won't have access to that single market. But on the other hand, if the countries do access the European Union, then there's a set of rules to access the European Union, uh, not only single market, but the European Union functioning. And then the Chinese will be in in trouble because of that. So again, we have an interesting circle here to square. Please continue with that. Yes, this is is a bit the the finding that I found in, in this paper, that it's China's more than than any kind of uh, political uh, game that that someone might attribute to it uh, is interested in 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 selling right uh, and 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 the fact that those countries are so close to the EU's huge market is a great appeal for China and and arguably the the biggest one um, and the second biggest appeal is that those countries have much less string, stringent regulation um, and overseeing than than. EU member states. Um, if if they were to become uh, EU member states and join the single market, as you said, 
access would be expanded, of course, but regulation would be also toughened. So the the Western Balkans would become just like any other mem- uh, member state, maybe like like Romania, Bulgaria. So would this mean that they Chinese investment would have to go to the same procedure that it would have to go to if if it was to go to Italy, to to Portugal, or to any other member state? Mm-hmm. However, if those countries were to drift away for, from EU integration and lose the privileges that they now have as candidate. Uh, member states, this would reduce China's own interest in the region. However, China's presence, sometimes it's it's detrimental to their absorption of the EU acquis and standards uh, because it obstructs the mechanism of conditionality and the socialization of, of EU norms. Uh, so this suggests that China is somehow interested in perpetuating the current status quo. So kind of this in the middle of they mm-hmm. having privileged access to the EU market, but not having all the requirements and the conditionalities that come with being an EU member state. So it's kind of, China wants to keep them in this limbo, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, be close to the EU, you know, be candidate member states, but don't adopt these these regulations that make my investment have to go through (laughs) all this difficult process, right? Because this would make make it more cumbersome and subject to to EU standards. Um, However, and this is the... The key is that this status quo, this limbo that I said, is only viable as long as EU political leaders and member states are not interested in segregating economically from China. Um, All this talk about decoupling, de-risking from China might threaten the status quo even if the Western Balkan countries do not want to. Why? Because the enlargement requirement of having to align their foreign policies to put uh, these countries would put the, the Western Balkan countries' interest in opposition to those of the EU, and that's not allowed, right? Mm-hmm. So, in essence, the Western Balkans' current relationship with China is destined to change as they access the EU, either mm-hmm. for regulatory and standard reason, standards reasons, or because the EU shifts its economic policy towards China, which is something that we are seeing right now. We don't know how it's going to materialize, but we heard von der Leyen uh, having a speech on economic security and, and uh, various trade uh, ch- uh, policy changes that have happened recently in the EU, this might also threaten Chinese involvement in these in this region. The sentence that was so beautifully written on your policy paper, where you go into EU integration could be a price to pay for Chinese money. I really <laughs> want to pick your mind on this. Well, what do you what do you mean then by this? Yeah. <laughs> um, th- well, as I said, the main appeal for, for of the Western Balkans for China would attenuate if they were to become EU member states, because there would be much stricter regulatory, uh, re- much stricter regulatory regime and enforcement of those regulations. This is why when we analyze uh, the the Belt and Road Initiative imprint in the EU, we see that it's so small um, that it did not materialize. So China represents a different governance model than the, than the EU. And this has a negative impact on the region's EU integration process. Um, even if the general objectives that both China and the EU are not at odds for the region. So when we analyze what China and what the EU want for the region, we don't see that big difference. Uh, but the means of doing it and and the, the governance models that accompany that are very different. So mm-hmm. if China manages to perpetuate these governance models, 
they will be uh, prevented from fully joining the EU uh, up to an extent. Uh, so this is why I say that if they are to be integrated to the EU, that might be the price to pay for, for Chinese money because maybe Chinese money would, would not be so easy to flow uh, within mm-hmm. those countries. But overall, both China and the EU want this region uh, this region to economically develop and to have the, 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 the infrastructure that, that it needs. Um, but And China has helped so far to, to develop this infrastructure and, and reduce the economic gap between those countries and the current EU member states. So up to an extent, China also has, has helped a bit in those, in those countries. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it, it does it through different means. It offers an alternative development model that is incompatible with the harmonization of the country's legislation with the EU acquis and standards, and it undermines the impact of the conditionality mechanism, as I have said. Mm-hmm. So, however, we, we still need to keep in mind that the EU's political ties and economic presence in the region are still substantially greater and much more institutionalized than China. And that's very important because institutionalization means perpetuation. Um, they cannot go away from one day to the other. So this together with the fact that the countries of this region still see their future as member states of the European Union, which is something that it's not given, and I clearly stated in my paper, so far they want to join the EU, but they might not want to join the EU in, in, in the near future as if there's not the proper you know, incentives from the EU. This suggests that Chinese influence is unlikely to be decisive. But mm it might cause a significant delay. And that's, that's the key of, of my argumentation here in their accession journey, because it might delay their absorption of EU rules, standards, and governance practices. And as we come to the end of our time together today, but again, uh, let's, t- let's keep this conversation going. You do uh, present on your policy paper some policy recommendations and there are uh, several, and they're all very good. But just for a question of time, give us uh, one or two that you really think that could make a difference. Actually, you just mentioned the importance of the EU to make a serious investment in the region regarding the this, at least a little bit of a speeding up. And the podcast we just had was about how to make that happen. So please tell us, some of the uh, moves that the European Union can do in this area? Yeah, as I said, the EU is now rethinking its enlargement strategy, but my recommendations go in the line of of this this that I just mentioned, and that I think is the key, is that these countries might drift away from the EU if the proper policies are not put in place, right? So we cannot take their will to become EU member states for granted. So uh, my recommendations... Uh, I have a set of recommendations that fall into the category of what we could call citizen engagement, of going beyond government-to-government engagement or contacts and focusing on government-to-people approach. Uh, So the EU should should promote public debate on the cost of transitioning towards EU membership and this way address the, the Western Balkans' own enlargement fatigue and this growing EU skepticism in the region and 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 engage uh, local communities and civil society organizations because they can act as watchdogs and empower the democratic spirit in this region. So so going to the people and make the people want to join the 
the European Union. And this will tackle two things. The first one is the democratization problem. And the second one is the, the will to join the, the EU uh, problem. And uh, the second... Let me interrupt you, Laia, here, because we want naturally our listeners to read your policy paper, but it is very well written. And I'm just going to quote you from your paper, which is shift from government to government to government to people. The EU should put local communities and civil society organizations at the heart of its approach to the region. So very, very well written. Congratulations on that one. Thank you. Thank you. And the, the last policy recommendation that I would just mention now, because as you said, there are others in the paper, is the fact that we need to focus on facts and not myth, uh, especially when dealing to China. Because China, because of the fact that it was so unknown for much of the Western world, um, as it has been rising as a global power, it has also um, grown the context of suspicion and rivalry with China. Um, so it's easy to be blinded by heightened rhetoric, fears, myths about China's engagement and objectives in the region. But what I claim is that while there might be a level of threat, uh, it's important to be realistic and fact-based. And the EU needs to govern its strategic and geopolitical objectives, keeping these in mind. This is how we can address the real, truly uh, pervasive consequences of China's engagement in the Western Balkans while constructively bringing China where it can be of mutual benefit to the region. As I said, China has helped in the development and bringing some needed infrastructure in the region. Uh, so this is how we can put both our efforts together and help in, in the development and hopefully the, the route towards membership of the Western Balkans in the European Union. I'm going to put the link on the podcast show notes that will go directly to the policy paper. But now, Laia, for people that want to know more and are interested, tell us where they can find your work online. Yeah, so uh, the easiest thing is to, to follow me or Twitter, on Twitter. I, uh, I post everything that, that gets published uh, in there. But also I have um, a very much updated page in, on ResearchGate um, and my own personal page at the at the faculty that you mentioned that that I am at the Barcelona Institute of International Studies so they will they will also find everything that that I do in there Lai, it's so interesting that you mentioned Twitter here in our podcast. We will not be changing the name of the platform. So <laughs> okay. I'm going to put all these links on the podcast show notes. The paper is EU Enlargement in the Western Balkans, the Effect of Chinese Investment. The researcher, my friend, an all-around wonderful person, it's Laia Komerma. Laia, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs> <laughs>